Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, commencing at verse 22, and this is in page 1028, if you're following in the Bibles in the church. When the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Thaniel, of the tribe of Asia. She was very old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God, and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to begin, uh, if I may, uh, by playing uh, an advert uh, from the recent uh, celebrations that are no doubt still in all our minds. It's uh, not Twelfth Night yet, so it's still officially Christmas, uh, so I think I can uh, get away with this. Uh, and my 
point here is not at all uh, that God doesn't like festivities. Uh, No, I mean, if there was one thing that Jesus in his day was known for, it was going to parties and having a good time, and the religious authorities of his day rather looked down their noses at him because of this. But generally, Christmas adverts completely decouple the festivities of Christmas from the religious meaning of Christmas. And it's that decoupling that I wanted to highlight. The advertisers like to promise the world to us at this time of year. I think back over Christmas time, and I wonder, was Christmas everything that the advertisers promised? According to then the, um, the post-Guy Fawkes slash Halloween purchasing period, it is a magical time where we can all look forward to having, uh, quote-unquote, the perfect Christmas. And, quote-unquote, the best Christmas ever. Adverts, surely, don't recognise that, well, 50% of Christmases are, by definition, of below-average enjoyability. Or that Christmas is a time of year that reminds many people more of what they have lost than of what they have to look forward to. The commercial trimmings of Christmas can easily make us feel sympathy with uh, Robert Ingersoll's quip that hope is the only universal liar who never loses his reputation for veracity, that is, for truth. And in this way, the secular world subsumes and subverts the Christmas message about the fulfilment of hope. The fulfilment of hope in the coming of God's Messiah, or Christ. Indeed, many of today's public intellectuals deny any sense of long-term personal hope. The atheist John Gray concludes that a truly naturalistic view of the world leaves no room for secular hope. Or Stephen Hawking recently said that the hope of heaven is simply a fairy tale for people who are afraid of the dark. Is that right? Is the Christmas hope A fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark? Or might the cynicism of a materialistic, naturalistic secularism be a fairy story for people who are afraid of the light? Simeon was a first century man who can tell us all a little something about hope. He lived in the hope of seeing the Lord's Christ the consolation of Israel. And in contrast to the the politically shaped hopes of so many Jews under the, the boot of Roman occupation, the consolation that Simeon desired was not the fulfillment of Jewish political hopes involving deliverance from their enemies and restoration of David's throne, 
but rather the salvation that Jesus brought. Unlike so many of his compatriots, Simeon trusted God's promise that the Messiah was to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. As the Apostle Paul would emphasize, in the Lord's Christ, God extends an offer of spiritually healing relationship that surpasses the ethnic boundaries of physical descent from Abraham. Paul says that is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, to the Jew, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father, spiritually speaking, of us all, Romans 4.16. In the, the play Measure for Measure, William Shakespeare wrote that the miserable have no other medicine but only hope. Yet atheists like Hawking are right about one thing. We don't want a hope that is a false hope. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, said St. Paul, we are of all people to be most pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. However, hope in Jesus is not a matter of, of blind fairy tale hope or faith. Rather, it is a matter of trusting, of holding to, of acting on what one has good reason to believe is true. Simeon knows that God's salvation won't be some take it or leave it private revelation but will be prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. See, reason is part of faith. And so it's part and parcel of the gospel written here by Luke. And the theme of hope springing from fulfilled prophecy is especially clear in Luke's gospel, which introduces itself as an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Those things fulfilled among us are the prophetic promises of the Old Testament about the Messiah. According to Luke 1.37, no word from God will ever fail. Thus, the newly pregnant Mary sings that God has helped his servant Israel remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And Zechariah sings that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. And Elizabeth says to Mary, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. So from the opening words of his gospel, Luke demonstrates his concern for evidence and reason. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished or fulfilled among us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, 
It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. In reporting the welcome given to Jesus at the temple by Simeon and Anna, Luke is pointing his readers once again to Jesus' fulfillment of prophecy as evidence for his Christian understanding of Jesus. Now, some of this fulfilled prophecy comes in the form of personal revelation given by the Holy Spirit to Simeon and it would seem to Anna as well. Prophecy that we wouldn't know about apart from Luke's report of it. The Holy Spirit had told Simeon that he wouldn't die before seeing the Lord's anointed. And moved by the Spirit, he went to the temple just at the right time as Mary and Joseph arrived with the baby Jesus. Taking Jesus into his arms, Simeon praises God, blesses Joseph and Mary, and gives Mary a prophetic word of knowledge. However, some of the fulfilled prophecy referenced by Luke here is a matter of public record in the Jewish Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament contains prophecies about the Messiah's family tree, his historical era of appearing, the place of his birth, his messianic actions, his suffering, his death, even his burial and his resurrection from the dead. Simply by being born, Jesus is already identified as Messiah by his family tree of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of King David, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. His historical era, in accordance with Genesis 49.10, and indeed his place of birth, Bethlehem in the fulfilment of Micah 5, verses 2 to 5. Now, it's interesting to note that contrary to the claims of some um, particularly internet-based sceptics, that Bethlehem simply didn't exist until centuries after Jesus was born, and therefore he couldn't have been born there in fulfilment of prophecy, that in May 2012, the Israeli Antiquities Authority announced the discovery of a small clay seal, that had accompanied a delivery of goods to the king of Judah some seven centuries BC, uh, which identified this shipment to the king as having been dispatched from, you guessed it, Bethlehem. What are we to make of fulfilled prophecies? As the Christian philosopher Thomas Morris argues, a single successful prediction about some remote or unlikely event can just be a lucky guess, can't it? A shot in the dark that just happens to hit its target. But the more successful predictions and the less likely we are to be fully satisfied with just describing it all to luck. At a certain point, as Morris says, we have to hypothesize some explanation for the success of the prophecies, some power responsible for the otherwise highly improbable accuracy that we observe. 
Now, in my book, Understanding Jesus, I conservatively calculated that Jesus had something like one chance in 182,580 million, million, million chances, that is roughly 1.8 times 10 to the 23, for those who do maths, of having fulfilled just 27 of the Old Testament prophecies about his origins and his actions. To give you some context for how lucky, as it were, those Old Testament prophecies would have to be to be accurate simply by chance, that's roughly comparable to your chances of successfully picking at random on your first attempt a single pre-specified grain of sand out of all of the grains of sand on the planet. I think that's a pretty good reason to pay close attention to what God is doing in Jesus. When he talks with Joseph and Mary, Simeon contrasts one group of people that falls or humbles itself and rises, is lifted up by God, with another group of people who speak against Jesus, God's signpost to salvation. Thus Simeon echoes Mary's hymn about how God has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts, but has lifted up the humble. Simeon's point is that by their response to Jesus, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Now the Greek word translated here as the thoughts of the heart actually means antagonistic thoughts or even evil thoughts. The use of this term continues Simeon's presentation of Jesus as a sign that will be rejected by those who refuse to humble themselves. And again, the Greek word for heart, cardia, encompasses a person's intellect as well as their emotions in the way that we moderns use the term. In other words, Simeon is saying is as people understand that Jesus is God's revelation... So Jesus reveals their inner antagonism towards God's light. Now some of these people may allow themselves to be brought low by the encounter, joining those humble souls who hunger for the good things of God's kingdom. He has fulfilled the hungry with good things, filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty, Luke 1:53. As Mary says, God's mercy extends to those who fear him, Luke 1.50. Some people ultimately refuse to fear, that is to respect the Lord. In this light, what are we to make of Simeon's comment to Mary that a sword will pierce through your own soul also? Of course, the most common interpretation that you'll hear of this is that it refers to the sorrow Mary would experience in seeing her own son rejected and ultimately crucified. Indeed, it is an embarrassing fact, the recording of which demonstrates at least the honesty of the Gospel writers, 
that most of Jesus' male disciples hid themselves away whilst Jesus was dying on the cross. Mary watched the whole literally excruciating display. That said, Simeon's comment about the sword, I think, likely alludes to the fact that Mary would also stumble and experience difficulty with her son's mission, as is reported later in Luke's Gospel. Well, Nicholas comments that family ties wouldn't render Mary exempt from making her own conscious choice to follow or to reject Jesus' teachings. As Jesus says in Matthew 10.34, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. It would appear from the Marian perspective of the whole uh, early chapters of Luke telling uh, the nativity story, as well as, say, from John's record of the crucifixion, that Mary did ultimately humble herself to follow her son. And each of us faces the same choice. For as C.S. Lewis famously said, uh, the one thing Christianity can't be is moderately important. Either it's untrue, in which case it is of no importance at all, or it is true, in which case it demands your whole life. Part of that life will naturally be concerned with trying to help other people to recognise and to follow Jesus. With Anna, we must speak about Jesus to all who are receptive. And this means doing more than simply retelling the story of Jesus as if it were some inspiring myth that happened, I don't know, a long time away ago in a galaxy far, far away. John Polkenhorn explains that Christianity is a historically orientated religion, and this sets it apart from many of the world's religions. The foundational stories of Christianity are not simply symbolic tales given to stir our imaginations, although they do do that, but they're rooted in God's actual self-disclosure, mediated through particular persons and events. Therefore, there is an, an evidential aspect to what's told in the Bible. Indeed, as we've seen, Luke's Gospel demonstrates that communicating the Christian hope in Jesus goes hand in hand with communicating the evidence for holding that hope. If you're wondering, is there any solid reason for hope in the world today? If you're wondering whether to invest your trust, your hope in Jesus or you're seeking to help others do the same. The message of Christmas is that there are solid reasons for joining Mary and Anna and Simeon and Luke in the humble recognition that the salvation of the Lord has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And if you're interested in seriously investigating Jesus, looking further into him, There are various opportunities that this church can give you. The Alpha course has already been mentioned. The Reasonable Faith course will be starting up again later this term. I have a couple of copies of my book with me. If you are serious about investigating, asking serious questions about Jesus and whether he really was 
who Christians think he is, whether there really is solid reason for hope in him, then come to me and I'll give you a book for free. Amen.